Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. He is Lord, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, Emmanuel, God with us. The Christ, the Lord, the Master, my Master, the Word, Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, Living Water, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Light of the World, our Advocate, our Authority, the Author and Perfecter of our Faith, the Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor, the True Vine, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Door, my Savior. Is He your Redeemer? Our hope, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Great I Am. He is my High Priest, the Good Shepherd, the Resurrection and the Life, and He is risen. His name is Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty today. Your light doesn't have to be. He is risen. One of the things I'm going to miss the most about being physically gathered together with my church family today is the interaction we have when I say that statement and declare the victory that Jesus has over sin and over death. Because in our church, at least our tradition is that when I say he is risen, then the believers and the congregation chant back in unison, he is risen indeed. And so at home today, or wherever you're watching from, I challenge you, when you hear me declare the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by saying, He is risen, that you would say back, He is risen indeed, because He is risen. And so today, what we talk about is the event, the one thing that changed everything else, and we're not talking about a virus. We're talking about the victory that Jesus Christ has over sin and death. We're talking about the empty tomb. It's the one thing that changes everything else in human history. And you think about it, as I was thinking about this message and how oftentimes our lives can change suddenly, obviously with this global pandemic, but think about even before that. Think about times when, when maybe a job change or health change or maybe you burned dinner and you had to change your plans for dinner and get takeout or maybe something serious happened and something happened in your marriage or something happened in life and how fast things can change. And as I was thinking about that for this message, I was thinking about when we go on road trips and, and get lost. And I'm old enough now that I remember a time when there were no GPSs, no global positioning systems to warn us, hey, you're off track, turn around and go back. And, and in fact, I was telling my kids this week about a time when I, I'm, they thought I was so old. I told them about a time when in order to drive somewhere, I had to print off directions to where I was going from a website called MapQuest. And some of you sitting there with your kids be like, it's true, tell them it's true. Uh, those of you who are as old as I am or, or older, and I was telling my 12-year-old daughter a story about a time when, when her mom and I, we were driving, we were just dating at the time, we were driving to go visit this college that we were thinking about going to. We're from the Midwest, I was born in Flint, Michigan, and, and we were going to Cedarville, Ohio. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that geography, there's no state in between Michigan and Ohio. And so we drove from Michigan down to Ohio, we had a great visit. We were driving back, and, and I said to Shannon, I said, do you know where the turn is to, to make sure we head back? She said, oh yeah, I've done this drive before, we're good. We're driving, we're talking, getting to know each other and dating and, and just talking and we drove past it. There was no Siri voice to say, rerouting, go back. And we kept driving. About an hour later, we saw this sign that said, welcome to Indiana. Okay, that wasn't in the plan. And in that moment, our plans changed. Oftentimes in life, plans change. The question is, what is God doing in that moment? 
Because if God is sovereign and he's in control of all that's happening, what's his plan when our plans change? And our plans have changed as a world. It's almost like God pushed pause on everything that was happening, right? Like if you're a little kid, maybe you've had a virtual birthday party now. If you're a little bit older, maybe you're a senior in high school or senior in college and you're not sure what's going to happen with graduation. Maybe there isn't going to be a graduation. Maybe it's a virtual graduation. Maybe at your work, maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're doing Zoom meetings all the time now. Maybe, maybe just the fact that we're doing virtual church, the world has changed. And thousands of lives have been lost. And, and projections are there's going to be many more. So what is God doing when our plans change? That's the question we're going to ask as we look at a passage of Scripture today. And the Gospel of John. If you've got a New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And if you would, join me there in John chapter 11 where Jesus Christ declares himself the resurrection and the life. And he's telling us he is the resurrection today. It's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's not just something that will be relevant one day in the future. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He is risen. And something you might want to know about the Gospel of John is one of the ways the author puts it together. He tells us really clearly what he's doing. He's writing this book so that our lives will be changed. He says in John chapter 20, I wrote this so that you would believe. There's a lot of other things I could have told you, but he picks seven signs. Seven miracles he puts in here. And miracles in the book of John are signs. It's like a road sign. It points you in a direction. And hopefully you don't miss it. And what it's actually pointing us to, these seven signs, are, is the person of Jesus Christ. There's also seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus is declaring who he is, that he is God. And he'll change your life. And so you read the Gospel of John and you see things like, there's the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle. It's a sign. But then afterwards, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Or in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And then in John chapter 9, he opens the eyes of a blind man. The miracle is a sign that points to the person of who Jesus is. And in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he's going to show us his power of resurrection. And how it's not just that he will be risen from the grave. He is risen. Yes, that is true. But he's got resurrection power in our lives. And trying to imagine what's going on in John chapter 11. It's a sad scene, really. We're coming into a funeral. There's a guy that Jesus loves like a brother. His name is Lazarus. And he's gotten ill, and we know that illness can change everything. Look at what's going on. John chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Interesting fact about Mary is that every time we see her in the Gospels, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's intimate with Jesus. Jesus is intimate with his family, Mary. Martha, Lazarus, it says here, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Listen, you think about all the people in this passage of Scripture. Every person apart from Jesus Christ himself, their plans changed in this passage of Scripture. Like, just think about, remember, there's not email, there's not text messaging at this time. And so when it says they sent for Jesus, they sent a messenger to Jesus. And most Bible scholars agree that that was a a day-long journey to come from from where they were at in Bethany to where Jesus was at. It took a whole day to to get to that spot. And if we start thinking about the time frame, we can put ourselves in the place of the messenger because what the passage says is that Jesus waited where he was at two days after, two days longer after he got this news. And then when he goes, it takes him a day to travel there. And when he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So that means 
When the messenger got this message, the one you love, the guy that you love like a brother, he's ill. Almost immediately after he left, Lazarus died. When he gives this news to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead. And did you see what Jesus said? Look at verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then, but then, think about what happens. If you're the messenger, you travel back another day journey, and you get back, and, and Mary and Martha are going to be disappointed that Jesus isn't with you, but, but at least you've got good news. Until you realize Lazarus has already died. Because when he gets back, Lazarus is dead. And so what do you do in that moment when Mary and Martha say, well, Jesus didn't come, but what did he say? Do you even say? What you, like maybe as the messenger, you believe Jesus is the Messiah. You believed he couldn't lie. You believed everything he said was true. And right now, the circumstances in life don't seem to line up with what you know to be true about him. God changed that man's plans. And what about Mary and Martha? Did you notice in the passage they don't even request Jesus to come? They said, just tell him that the one he loves is sick. You know why? Because we assume love comes, love reacts, love saves, love rescues, love fixes, especially if you have the power. And we've seen Jesus do it before with like Jairus' daughter. He'll raise somebody from the dead. He goes immediately and, and he doesn't even have to go. He could do it from a distance, but, but he delayed. That wasn't Mary and Martha's plan. Later we see they say in the passage, if you, if you had been here, God changes their plans, but the question is why? Another thing we see as we walk through this whole passage of Scripture is there's a theme in this passage. The theme is belief. At least eight times in the, the book of John, in John chapter 11, we see this word belief or a form of this word belief. He's changing lives. He tells the disciples in verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you would believe. So wait, he's doing a work in Lazarus' life so that somebody else would believe? So these guys that are going to be trusted to turn the world upside down so they would believe. And then he has a conversation with Martha when he finally shows up. And Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. If you had been here, he said, your brother will rise again. She says, I know. And she's got the problem many of us have with the resurrection. It was relevant 2,000 years ago. She thinks it'll be relevant one day in the future. But Jesus says, it's relevant today. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asks her, do you believe? And later at the tomb, I don't want to ruin the story, but he raises Lazarus from the dead. But before that happens... He says, I'm praying, Father, so that these people that aren't even named, so they'll believe. And it says right in verse 4 that, that this doesn't end in death because it was for the glory of God. And so what do we know? We know that he changes their plans to change their lives for the glory of God. And that's our main truth today is this, that God changes our plans because he's got plans to change our lives for his glory. God changes our plans because he has plans to change our lives for his glory. But the question is how? And what change does he want to do? And that's what I think we see as you walk through this passage. And we don't have time today to go through every verse in this passage. But I think if we zoom in and we zoom out, there's some different scenes, almost like different episodes. And we're kind of going to treat this almost like we're binge watching on Netflix, right? Like we're going to have three episodes today that teach us three truths. And some of you might be like, I'm binge watching. I do three episodes in a Zoom call with my boss. Well, listen, you can confess that later. Right now, what we're going to do is we jump into this text, and we're not going to be able to walk through every verse, but see the big picture of what's happening. We already saw the first scene and what's going on there when, when, when Jesus gets the news. You know what's happening here is that Jesus is showing us that God reveals his love through suffering. God reveals his love through suffering. A lot of times, as even followers of Jesus, we act like bad things happen in this world, and it's like in spite of God's love or kind of outside of God's love. And 
the reality is, we see it in the book of Job, like nothing happens in this world that doesn't pass through the hands of our Father. This wasn't a mistake. In fact, what we see in this passage is this was God's plan. Let me show you something in these verses we already read that you may have missed. That if you get this, it'll change your life. At least it'll change the way that you, you deal with suffering in life. Go back with me to, to verse 3 in John chapter 11. It says, So the sister, just Mary and Martha, sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love, that's the Greek word phileo, it means brotherly love. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved. So there's an emphasis here. There's love. That word for loved is the word agape. It's the the highest, the most unconditional, unstoppable. It's God's love. Not only did he love him like a brother, he loved him with God's love. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then this next word is the key. Underline this, circle this, use an app, highlight this, don't miss this word. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was at. A lot of times we'll read this passage of Scripture almost like it says, but, yet, and Jesus heard this news, he loved him, but he waited where, like, it's, like this is contrary to his love. But that's not what the passage actually says. It says, so, therefore, in other words, he delayed, he waited because he loved Martha, because he loved Mary, because he loved Lazarus, because he loves you. It was because of his love that he waited here. When you think about this situation, try and put yourself in the place of Mary and Martha. I don't know if you've ever waited for big news before. Maybe a phone call, you keep checking your phone, or you're going to get an email, you ever keep hitting refresh on the email? I don't know for sure that this happened, but I think I'm pretty confident it happened at least for Martha, if not for Mary, because they're both human. But they send this messenger, and he's got to go on a day journey. Maybe they thought, perhaps Jesus is already on his way. How many times do you think they went out to the doorway checking to see if Jesus was coming to heal their brother? Or to even resuscitate him if he's just died. But how many? I can't even imagine their anxiety. When you think about all the anxiety in our world today, with this pandemic that's happening, and People are afraid, like, well, how, when is, no, no other time in life have we seen so many people wearing masks in public because people don't want to get sick because of death. There's people, there's, somebody's watching today that's afraid to die. There's a lot of anxiety. Some people are afraid of losing their job, afraid of what might happen, take care of their family. And then a lot of times from the faith community, we'll say things, they sound so trite, like faith over fear. And there might be some truth in the statement, but as somebody who's experiencing anxiety at that moment, it sure doesn't, doesn't help. And it almost makes it feel like the person saying it doesn't really understand what anxiety is like. I know in my own life, I've struggled with anxiety. In fact, one of the darkest seasons I went through in my life was about a two-year battle with anxiety. And I was meeting with a counselor twice a week, and, and my, my wife and friends, some of them were like, they're not even sure if I was going to be okay. And, and I would pray, and, and sometimes that would be the worst moments. I remember, I remember when my counselor said to me, he said, I think we should try medication, not to fix it, but for just a, a season in this therapy. And, and I remember thinking, I'm a pastor. This is a sin issue. Anxiety is a sin in the scriptures. And I'm going to take medicine to fix a sin issue. And I felt like, isn't Jesus enough? And struggling through this moment. And I remember after about two years of walking through that process, having this encounter with God, I was praying to him. And he just spoke his love into my life. 
And he told me that he loved me. He said, that love that you preach to all these other people, I love you that way. And his love, we read in the scripture, perfect love casts out fear. His love, there's room for his love in the anxiety, in the suffering, in the difficulty. In fact, if in your belief about God, you don't have room that not only is his love in the difficulty, but his love might be the motivator for the difficulty. Remember the text says here, not he loved them, but... He loved him so it was because of his love that he didn't go. It was because of his love that he delayed. It was because of his love that they suffered the way they did. If you don't have room in your theology for the fact that that God's love might be the motivator for suffering in some of our lives, then how do you explain the cross? Because we, we quote verses a lot of times like John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Gave his son for what? Like, so he would die a gruesome death. And, and we'll talk about cross, and the cross is such a casual thing, but do you realize how gruesome the cross was? Just physically how gruesome the cross was. It was so gruesome that, that people that had lived during that time, no polite person, no sophisticated person in a normal conversation would even talk about the cross. It, it was used to intimidate people to submit to government authority. The Rome would, would crucify thousands of people on the roadside during religious festivals so that people would see writhing bodies on crosses dying and think, I don't want that to be me. I'm just going to submit. I'm just going to obey. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. Isaiah says he was beaten beyond the recognition of a man. And a thorn crown pressed on his head. Tertullian says that many people, when they were crucified, when they dropped the cross on the ground, and their bones and joints would be all disjointed, that many people went insane. And God loved you so much. He gave his son, but the physical part wasn't the worst part. It's what happens in the garden when he's praying. And he realizes he's going to be receiving this cup of wrath from his father. And he sweats drops of blood. It's what happens on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's forsaken by his father so that you and I could be forgiven when he's taking our place, he's our substitute at the cross. In fact, with this story in John chapter 11 and God's sovereign plan, what it actually is is a catalyst to the cross. If you read to the end, there's a conversation by people who don't even, they don't like Jesus. They're against Jesus. They think Jesus threatens their way of life. And so they say, if we don't stop him, everyone will believe. There's that theme again. And then Caiaphas, one of the most ironic characters in all the Bible, he's, he doesn't even know he's speaking prophetically, and he says, don't you know it's better for one man to die than for the entire nation to perish? And, and Jesus died. He didn't die for the nation. He died for anyone that placed their faith in him. He died for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. He was dying in our place. He was becoming sin on the cross in that moment so that we could become the righteousness of God. Caiaphas was right. He can be a substitute, but he's not a substitute so the nation can thrive and you can keep your power. He's a substitute so your sins can be forgiven and you can know the power of the resurrection because he is risen. And he reveals his love through suffering, the suffering of the cross. That's what we see in that first scene. If we zoom out and zoom back into the next scene, what we see is that he replaces our panic with his presence. He replaces our panic with his presence. See, what happens next, after he delays for two days, he says to the disciples, let's go. We're going to go there. And they head off on a, a day-long journey, but listen to what they say in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, the Jews were, were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? <laughs> now, this sounds nice, like they're concerned for Jesus, but... 
we know the disciples from reading the New Testament that they're also thinking about themselves. Thinking, hey, if they're going to kill you, then we're probably going to die too. There's a mode of panic here. Like, wait, 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 we can't be going back to that. They tried to kill you once. Like, that's just, that's just foolishness to go back. And, and, and we know from experiencing it, right, like when the pressure gets turned up in life and we tend to panic, what ends up happening is there's pressure. It kind of squeezes what's on the inside of us to get it out of us. I brought a, a, a tool that we use sometimes in our kitchen at our house back at home. And, and we'll take, you know, different things, limes, lemons, oranges. Got a lime here today. We'll stick them in there. And this tool is specifically designed to apply pressure. And you'll see, as you press, what's on the inside starts to come out. <laughs> Some of us experienced this in life already, like with this virus happening. You know, you, first of all, you know, work, like you can't come into work. And some of us thought it was like a staycation at first. And kids' schools got canceled. And they're just playing outside and having fun. But eventually they're like, hey, they got to learn something. And I've seen on social media, some of you started homeschooling them. And at first, at first it was funny because it was like, my kids are super gifted. This is amazing. Like how, and then by like day five, it was like, ah, a little bit more coming out. A little bit more seeing what's on the inside of us. I'm not sure I even like these little people. Squeeze a little bit more. And you, you were doing Zoom meetings for a little while. About day 10, you're like, am I still going to have a job? It's like a little bit more pressure. A little more comes out. And you start seeing some anxieties. Some of our love for comfort. You start a little bit day 20. You know, some of you are introverts. Even you are going, I got to get out of this house. I don't even know if I like the people that are in this house with me. And some of you are extroverts. You're like, I'm going to the grocery store just to buy gum. Like, I don't, I don't even need to go. I just get out of the house. And it's like a little bit more coming out. And then maybe you lose a job. Day 25, maybe somebody you know gets the virus. Maybe you. Somebody dies. The death toll keeps going up. And more stuff just keeps pressing out of us. And some of us don't like what we see. And what comes out. But the pressure of life has this tendency to squeeze the inside out. And we might all look like we got it together on the outside, but we might not all like what's on the inside. And you might, just from the way that we've seen the disciples act, and you know, there's a storm and they're terrified and they're like, Aren't you don't you even care, Jesus? And and then, and then Peter walking on water for a little while, and he, then he looks at the wind and the waves, and you, you expect them to blow it here, but I don't think it's a mistake. Not only do they not blow it. But who God uses here in this passage? After verse 8, Jesus explains some things to them they don't really get, but he's, he's talking about that he's not going to die outside of God's timing. And then, then verse 14, it says, He told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you might believe. God's doing a work through your life, through other people's lives. And, and it's why we say as a church all the time that God wants such spiritual transformation in us that it leads to gospel saturation. That what he's doing in your life isn't just about your life. It's about the, there's thousands of things that are happening. So we were t- telling our girls the other day just about, you know, the grandpa so wanted to fight in Vietnam and he got pulled back right as he was going to California to be deployed and, and he always regretted it. He wished he'd gone to fight. And, and one of the girls had the insight to say, well, maybe I wouldn't be here. Or, or, or maybe if you hadn't been invited to even watch this online service today, maybe, maybe God wouldn't change your life the way he plans to change your life today. And, and maybe that'll change somebody else's life. And See, he says to the disciples, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there in Lazarus' life so that I could do some work in your life. But then look at, look at what gets said next. So Thomas called, and here John tells us he's called the twin, but at least in American churches, he's got another nickname. If you know it at home, you might say it right now to the other people in the room. He's Thomas the, the doubter, people would say if they were present. I'm sure five or ten people would yell back, he's a doubter. 
But look at what it says in this passage. For Thomas the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. That's courage. That's bold. When he's pressed and everybody else is panicking, what comes out of him is a, a boldness. But, but why? Where does that come from? But we'll notice, it says in the text, it said he's with him. It's like, I'm going with him. He's been with him in the past. He was with him in the boat when the storm came and everybody's terrified. They're going, don't you care? And, and then he gets up and he calms the storm. You know what the text says in Mark chapter 4? It says at that point, they were more afraid of the guy in the boat than they were the storm that had been outside the boat. They realize who this is. He, they might not have it all figured out at this point, but he is the resurrection in life. He's got power. If we are with him and we die, it was time for us to die. Let us go with him, and it's his presence that replaces panic. And for many of us, at this moment and these times, and there's panic that's happening in our lives. And, and for many of us, the reality is it's because we start to realize what gets squeezed out of us is we love comfort so much. It might not be true all around the world, but I know in my community here in North Raleigh, a lot of people are just going, I want, I want to get back to normal, and, and we don't know if we'll ever get back to normal. But we know we have a mission still, regardless of what happens in circumstances, We've been given a mission, and that mission is to go make disciples, that we would experience spiritual transformation so that we would be part of the gospel saturation in our city. That's an eternal mission. And God's first concern in your life is not your comfort in that mission. Because many of us, what we say when we want to get back to normal is, I liked my life. I liked how comfortable it was. But most of us know, like if you look at any other area of life, any other arena where there's people on mission, you would not expect the leader to have the primary concern be everybody's comfort. Like even if you're a sports fan, some of you may have used to have been, now you're like, I don't need sports or whatever. But if you think about like spring training, two days in football, you think the coach is walking around going, are you comfortable? Is it too hot out here today? Doing too many push-ups? Don't want your arms? Hey, can we get a masseuse over here? This guy's arms has done 20 push-ups. No. You say, hit the sled, do the work. We've got a mission, it's to win the game. Your comfort is not my first concern because the mission's too important. Our military... Like, I love our military, men and women that have served. Some people have served in the military that don't even believe what I believe, but so that I could have the right to proclaim Jesus to you today, that he is risen. I'm so thankful for our military. And I've talked to some of them about the training, whether it's a Marine going through the SEER training, you know, survival and evasion, and just think about that. And they get interrogated, and do you think that their drill sergeant's going to go up to them at boot camp? You know, have you seen, that, like, there's a few people that have been Navy SEALs, they go through hell week, and you watch a documentary on that, like it's not the same as going through it. I'm not saying that, but they put them out there, they get hypothermia. Some of them, they drown. They drown. They actually drown. They resuscitate them. Like, do you think the drill sergeant's going, hey, I don't want to, is the coffee warm enough today? Because the mission's too important for that. Follower of Jesus, we've got a mission that's more important than any of those missions. It's an eternal mission. Like, everything else is temporary. But this is for eternity. Jesus. They replace your panic, not with your comfort, but with his presence. That's why he says when he gives us the commission, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything. The spiritual transformation you've experienced overflow out of your life and in their lives. And here's the promise, I'm with you all. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And lo, I am with you always. The Alpha and the Omega, the, the beginning and the end. The one who has the authority over death. He's got the keys to, to death and Hades because... He was dead and now he's alive and he is risen. He is the resurrection and the life and the resurrection is relevant today. He'll replace your panic with his presence. He'll show you his love through suffering. And the third scene, what we see, 
is that he defeats death to give you life. Look at it with me. In the third scene, what's happened is there's been a funeral. And Jesus shows up and, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And he's spoken with Martha and he's declared to her, I am the resurrection and the life and asked her the question that everybody has to answer. Do you believe that? And then he's talking to Mary. The Mary who's always at his feet. She's at his feet again. And up until this point, there hasn't been a lot of emotion in this passage. But look at this part. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother, this is personal, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, look at all the emotions of Jesus. He was deeply moved. When you hurt, God hurts. In his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, come and see. In the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This is an intense scene. Dripping with emotion. What's happened at their funerals that they would have, it would be an expectation of Jews, even poor Jews, to hire a professional mourner to come and some flute players and, and different people who come. And, and Mary and Martha, they're not poor. And there are probably a lot of people there. And that's the backdrop. And there's been a procession and men wailing out and women being hired to wail out and, and crying. And then, then Mary's at his feet. And you think about the heaviness of it. Like any difficulty in life is hard. Disease and divorce and, and all kinds of things that happen. But there's nothing quite like death. Death is so final. It's so unavoidable. And it's so something we've been thinking a lot about in our society right now. I believe there's someone watching that's afraid to die. I was watching the news the other day, and there was a woman on there. Her name was Mara, and her husband had died from the coronavirus. He was 42 years old, didn't have any pre-existing conditions. And he was a father of three, an assistant principal, a coach, loved by a lot of people. And she was on, on, this, on CNN talking about the last moments they shared together. How at first they didn't even think he had it, and he wasn't showing the symptoms, or they weren't strong enough. And then eventually everything happened fast. And she didn't even really get to talk to him in person. She was talking to him over FaceTime. And she was begging him, said, don't leave us, don't leave us right now. And she said the doctors told her that his breathing, he's really struggling with, with breathing, getting, getting uh, all the stuff out of his lungs. And I said, we've got him on three blood pressure medications. And they got her off the phone. And then, then she called back and got on the phone. And they said, we've thrown the kitchen sink at him. And we can't, we can't do anything. And she started telling the interviewer, Aaron Burnett, she started saying, he was such a great husband. He, he'd write me love letters. And not just like the kind they're like, I love you, have a great day. It was like, here's what you mean to me. Here's what I want us to do together in the future. She said he would get her coffee every day. That, and so when she spoke to him in those last moments, she said, thank you for loving me so well. I've always felt so cherished. And she began to cry and talk about how much they're going to miss him. And then Aaron Burnett started to cry, and death is just heavy. Here's Jesus in a moment like that. My brother, my brother wouldn't die if you would have been here. And the text says that he's, the language is interesting. It says he's, he's deeply troubled. He's, he's greatly moved here. He's deeply moved in his spirit. Specifically that phrase, that phrase is not a sad phrase, actually. It's actually angry. He's angry here. Every time that word's used in other places in the New Testament, it's for rebuke and, and reproach and for warning and and then it says in, in verse 35, it says that he wept. She said, 
sadness and, and anger. And why is he weeping? Because he's the only one here in this passage that knows what he's about to do. He said this, this will not lead to death. He knows it's going to lead to life. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he weeping? Now, here's the reality. A lot of pastors, a lot of Bible scholars, different people debate about this. Here's what I believe. I believe that the reason why Jesus is weeping here is not because Lazarus has died. I believe he's weeping because he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. Because Jesus, think about it, he's the only person on earth that knows what it's like to be in a place where there's no crying and no pain and no suffering and no sorrow and then to come to this place where there is pain and there is suffering and there is death. And he knows if he brings his friend who's been at that place for four days back to this place, he'll have to die again. That there will be suffering. I think that's why he's weeping. I remember when my dad died. A lot of people said things to me. But I remember one woman who loves me very much. She came to me and she said, your dad loved you a lot, but he would not come back because where he's at is too good. And I believe Jesus is weeping because he's about to bring his friend back from that place to this place. But why is he angry? What's he angry about? I believe he's angry at death. He's facing off right now against, against the final enemy that we have. And what's behind that? And sin. And what's behind that? And Satan. And it's like a war here in the Colosseum. And he's focused. He says, show me. Show me where he's at. Look at verse 38. What happens next? There's an intensity here. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, she protests again. She says, he's been there for four days. It's going to stink. And no, he's, he's rotting. And, and Jesus says, if you believe, you see the glory. And he prays and and look at what he says. He says, with a loud voice, Lazarus. He calls him by name. He said in John chapter 5, the dead are going to hear his voice. And, and Augustine, Augustine said, if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus, that everybody would have come out of that tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. And they took his grave clothes off. And it was a sign pointing to who Jesus is. He is the resurrection. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. But he is also the resurrection and the life. And that's relevant today because he is risen. That's not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. That means that when he died on the cross and he was dead, he was really dead. Not just for a minute, for three days. He tasted death for you. For you that are afraid of death. He tasted it. And he defeated it. It says later in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death where is your victory? Oh death where is your sting? And Jesus purchased that victory when he defeated death. Because he is risen. And so believer in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you what do you think God's doing right now? He's changed our plans right? Like, don't miss the sign. Don't be like my wife and I, and we can see this huge sign, welcome to Indiana. Like, we've got a global pandemic. God's pushed pause on the world. What do you think he's doing? He's changed your plans. He wants to change your life. Maybe in your suffering, you need to experience his love. Maybe in your panic, you need to experience his presence. Will you cry out to him? I believe what he's doing in the church is he's calling us to revival. You can't revive what was never alive. He's calling believers back to himself. But some of you here today are not yet believers. Maybe you believe facts about Jesus. Maybe you even believe that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. The demons believe that, but they're not going to heaven. 
You've got to place your faith in Jesus. It's the question that gets asked throughout this passage. Do you believe? I did this so you'd believe. Do you believe? Do you? I did it. I'm praying so they'll believe. It's because he wants you to believe. He wants you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says that we've all sinned, that we fall short of the glory of God. It also says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, a separation from God. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross for you. But you have to do it if you don't trust that what he did was in your place. If you don't shift your trust from your good works, from what you do, from that you could save yourself to, to what Jesus did on the cross. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he offers us a gift. And he tells us in the Bible how we can receive that gift. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See the importance of belief? You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Will you confess that Jesus is Lord? If so, you will be saved because with your heart you believe. With your mouth you confess. I want to give you an opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord today and be saved. Maybe that person I've been talking to that's afraid of death, he'll give you life. See, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And the way you receive it is you believe in your heart. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he was dying for your sins. And you confess that he is Lord. And if you want to do that right now, will you pray with me? If you're a believer in Jesus, will you pray that someone would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior right now? And if you're that person that needs to trust Jesus, will you pray this with me? Father, we come before you right now. And I pray for the person who needs to trust you as their Savior. I pray they would just pray these words with me. God, I admit that I am a sinner. I believe your son Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. And right now I want to ask him to be my Savior. I call upon him as Lord. And the Bible says that if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, and you prayed that prayer and you understood what you were doing, you were asking Jesus to be your Savior, that all of heaven's rejoicing with you. And so I rejoice with you. There's one thing I'd love for you to do is... If you were invited to watch this online, will you tell the person who invited you that you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or maybe you just tuned in for some reason. God directed you here. And I'd love to give you some more information about how you can grow in a relationship with Jesus. Would you contact us? You can write in the comments if you're watching on a platform that has comments in it. Or you can email us at info at sfchurch.com. And we'd love to give you some information about how you can grow in a relationship with Jesus and what some of your next steps will be in that relationship. And there's lots of information about things that are happening in our church. Just go to that website that I mentioned, sfchurch.com, and you can find out all kinds of information. But I want to say to you, if you're joining us today for the first time, we're beginning a brand new series next week called Divine Invitations. And what's God inviting you into right now in this season of life? When things have changed in our world and he's wanting to change your world, what's he inviting you into? And so I want to invite you to join us next week at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock for one of our online services. And I look forward to when we're able to gather together in person, maybe meet you in person. But if you want any information about the church, about a relationship with Jesus, or anything we can do to serve you, would you just contact us at info at sfchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. He is risen. Will you join me in reading our benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.